Hello, this is Leslie Garth of Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today we're talking about liquidated damages in contract law. Liquidated damages is a straightforward topic, and today Professor Darren Rosenblum of the Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law at Pace University returns to Law to Fact to give a straightforward and quick answer. Before we begin, I know final seasons is upon us, and if there are any particular topics you need a quick exploration of, please shoot us an email at lawtofact.gmail.com or tweet us, and we'll see if we can accommodate your request. And if you need a study break, why not rate us or give us feedback on any of the platforms on which you listen to us? All right, here is our discussion on liquidated damages. Thanks for joining me. Um, I think one of the issues when it comes to damages that seems to trouble students is how to handle liquidated damages. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about liquidated damages. And let's start with just, could you describe what liquidated damages are? Well, liquidated damages are uh, basically damages that are foreseen by the parties. So when two parties enter into a contract, most often at that point, they're getting along really well, which is why they trust each other enough to enter into a contract. Mm -hmm. But sometimes parties are aware, even at the moment that they enter into a contract, that they might have some problems at some point. And so they enter into the contract uh, liquidated damages provision which basically establishes what sort of damages would be paid out in the case of a breach. And what that, what that does is it facilitates for the parties um, an ability to know in advance what the cost is if there is a breach on either side. But it also sometimes serves as a useful marker for courts to figure out what to actually award the parties. So the cases that you and I both assign, um, the ones that I know best are Gustafson and Wasserman's, and I think that they really match each other nicely, um, both involve courts struggling with whether to award the plaintiff the liquidated damages that are put into the contract. All right, so, so in other words, Liquid, a liquidated damages clause is a clause in a contract that both parties agree to. So just like they agree to price and just like they agree to delivery date and just like they agree to color of something, they can agree to another term, which is the liquidated damage term. And so they put the term in the contract as a term that they think makes sense in the event of breach. And then there's a breach. And then right. one of the parties say, wait a second, we don't want to be bound by that term. We don't want to be bound by that liquidated damages Right, term. absolutely. And, okay. and that's a normal thing to happen because at the moment that parties enter into a contract, they still, even though they're, enter, they're creating a liquidated damages clause, they still might not be thinking through exactly what the consequences are of um, of uh the breach and so we have a great example in the wasserman's case um where the parties had agreed to a liquidated damages clause which was pretty substantial Mm -hmm. right so in wasserman's you have the the 
owner of the property is the township of Middleton. And sometimes when a public entity enters into a contract, they're not the best drafted because their lawyers are, you know, they're, they're, they're basically staff attorneys and they're not, they're not overseen properly. And it seems like that might've been the case here because the damages clause in this case is a terrible one. What it says is that the, um, that if there's a cancellation by the landlord, that they would pay the plaintiff a pro rata reimbursement for improvement costs, but also damages equivalent to a quarter, 25% of the average gross receipts. It, it sounds on its surface like not ridiculously excessive because it does reference gross receipts and it's below the total of gross receipts. Right. But when you read more closely into the case and once you understand the context in which the case arises, you see that the Wasserman store is actually a supermarket. And, the, and a supermarket, and this is true for Target or Walmart, um, they make, in terms of profit, something around 2 to 3% of what their gross receipts are as profit. So to give them 25% is a huge windfall, right? It's a huge windfall to Wasserman. It's a windfall to the victim of the breach. Right, right. Right, they make a ton of money right. off the breach because they're getting 25% instead of two or 3% right. um, uh, payout, right? right. And by and the way, so, they weren't making much money at the time anyway. Yeah. Right, which is typically true of supermarkets and even big companies like Walmart. You know, they make a lot of money, Walmart, but compared to their overall sales, they really only make 2%. It's right. not, not, a, not a great return on their equity. It's not like an Apple product where the company ends up making like 20 or 30% mm -hmm. of the sales as profit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with Wasserman's, what you see is they try to get the township cancels the lease the the plaintiff Wasserman's tries to get the full value of the liquidated damages promised to it the defendant objects and what the court does is it looks at the law and it looks both at the restatement um, uh, section 356 um, and at the UCC section 2-718 to, to figure out when liquidated damages are enforceable. And what those provisions both say is that when the, when the liquidated damages term um, is unreasonably large, the court should not enforce it, right? And okay, so what the- Okay, so, so I'm gonna stop so you for a second. Can yeah, I just stop please you for go a ahead. second? Sure. All right, so what you're saying is that if they agree to, at the time they signed the contract, they agreed to a damage payout. And at the end, when the damage payout kind of is, is invoked, for lack of a better word, the court looks at it as being unreasonably large, the court's going to invalidate it. Right. But the court looks at more than just it being unreasonably large, right? Aren't they, don't they look at a, a, a bunch of other factors? Or, I mean, right. in this particular case, I guess, they only looked at this factor, maybe, because they don't have to look at a million, but they do look at other factors, right? 
Yeah, well, absolutely. What the court is principally concerned with when it decides whether to enforce a clause is whether the damages are difficult to assess. Okay. And they look at that because if the damages are difficult to assess, then the court is more likely to rely on the party's own assertions in the contract of the value of the breach. Mm -hmm. So it is actually a sort of perverse outcome. Mm -hmm. If it's easy to figure out the damages, the court will figure out the damages for themselves. Right. If it's hard to figure out the damages, the court will trust the parties. Why? Because they can't figure it out otherwise, right? They have to rely on what the parties uh, elaborate as the, the valuation related to a potential breach. And an example of that is um, in the other case that we mentioned, uh, Gustafson versus South Dakota. And here, the contract um, is a per day liquidated damages for the resurfacing of a state highway. Mm -hmm. And why is a state highway different from um, a supermarket? Well, it's different because the value of the road is hard to is hard to fix, right? Especially is since the, there was a road that they could have, there was like an alternative road that they could have Exactly. Used. Is there an alternative road? Who is using the road? Is there a toll on the road? Is there any, uh, what are all the factors that go into the road, right? Mm -hmm. How many people use it? Does that vary on weekday or weekend, right? It's, it's very hard to assess. And it's even harder because often roads are run by public entities, right? right. So in the Gustafson case, in fact, the other party was a public entity. Um, and the arrangement there was for a graduated scale of liquidated damages uh, on a per day rate of um, uh, $210, right? Right. So the court there, in fact, does accept the party's assertion of what the liquidated damages are because they view it as reasonable. And why do they view it as reasonable? In part because it's difficult for the court itself to come up with a number, right? Yeah. Remember, courts are not um courts typically rely on expert testimony mm -hmm. of parties to elucidate aspects of business that the courts themselves don't understand and parties know this so they hire experts to argue what the actual value is and so here um uh the liquidated damages clause in contrast to the wasserman case was in fact enforced Got it. So we have a liquidated damages clause. And in Wasserman's, they talk about this idea of liquidated damages versus penalty. And they define penalty as something that's intended to punish a party for not complying with the contract. And a punishment is not allowed in contracts law. We punish in tort law civilly, but we don't punish in contracts law. So with all of the cases that you've just described, could you list some bullet points of how to decide when a liquidated damage results rather than what's a reasonable prediction of um, damages and therefore up, would be upheld by a court, something that would technically punish a party and therefore would be struck down by the court as not a fair assessment of damages? 
Well, the court is going to look first at the clause itself. What do the parties articulate as the damages? What are the damages for um, specifically? And once they make that assessment, um, looking at the document of the contract itself, then um, they will figure out whether the valuation assigned by the parties is a fair and reasonable one. So they'll look to see if they were to assess the value of the damages on their own, what sort of number they would come to. Mm -hmm. And then if the number that the party set is close enough to it, mm -hmm. they are more likely to rely on the party's assessment. But it's really when the parties come up with some sort of excessive number that the court is going to be reticent to enforce it. Got it. When you're looking at liquidated damages, I understand what you're saying, this idea that the courts are going to assess the actual payout or the actual consequences of damages versus what they predicted at the time they signed the contract. My other question is about the type of consequences that incur from the breach. And so it seems to me that where the consequence is kind of one that's a straight mathematical mistake. So, for instance, you were supposed to deliver $100 worth of strawberries, but you only delivered $80, that the court won't really look in favor to liquidated damages, but where it's something that's hard to assess, like the loss of a road for a day, that the court will more likely favor upholding a liquidated damages clause. I totally agree with what you're saying. That's a good summary of the law. All right, so anything else you want to add on um, liquidated damages? No, I think it's a pretty basic concept. Sometimes it's intimidating to students because they're in this part of the course where damages is the focus, and sometimes people go to law school because they're allergic to numbers. But, but liquidated damages is a really straightforward topic. Thank you. And so what I'm hearing is, a liquidated damages clause is a clause in a contract that parties agree to at the time they sign the contract. If, in fact, there's a breach and the liquidated damages clause is triggered, that the court's going to look at what the liquidated damages clause would actually pay out mm -hmm. and see if that is reasonable. It doesn't have to be exact, but reasonable, right, to yeah. what was incurred. And if it's like a windfall to one of the parties and it's yeah. disproportionate, the court's going to strike it down. Also, if it is um, something that tends to punish a party for breach, the court's going to strike it down. Right, of course, because there are no punitive damages in contracts. Got it. All right, perfect. All right, thank you very much. That was really helpful. Sure. Thank you. My pleasure. So that's my discussion with Professor Darren Rosenblum on liquidated damages. Hope it was helpful. Thank you, as always, to www.bensound.com for the music, and good luck as you head into final season.